0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 57 verses 9 through 11. It's our call to worship. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. And let us uh, now sing praise to our God by remaining standing and singing together hymn number 221. Please be seated. Let us pray together. Great God in heaven, again, we give you praise, glory, and honor as we come together to worship you. We acknowledge you as the source and the fountain of all life. Uh, Everything that was made was made by your hands, even ourselves, Uh, and one of the wonders of, of the parent is to see uh, the new life you create in the womb. You are a wonderful God, and we stand in fear and wonder and awe at what you are able to do and what you are continually doing. Gracious uh, Father in heaven, we we are conscious equally of the fact that we live in a fallen creation, and that the world in which we live stands in rebellion to God. And uh, the, the sorrow of our hearts is that so often we join in the rebellion, at least in the outer man, there remains in each of us who are converted still a principle uh, of the old man, though he is dead, though he is crucified. Nevertheless, uh, there are remnants of his nature which still cling to our flesh. And Father, because of that, there is a part of us that remains willing to go along with the world and its rebellion and its ways and to listen to what it has to say. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask you that you would cleanse us again this day that you would clean out uh, the old leaven of the old man, that you would give us a fresh start again, even today, and that you would cause our hearts and our minds to be renewed after the image and the mind of Christ. We know, Holy Spirit, that your gracious work is that of a conformity to the Son of God in his perfect humanity and in his perfect sonship. Uh, we will never be perfectly... Uh, we will never bear his image as he does. We will never quite attain his status, but we will be conformed to a likeness like his own. And that is certainly enough for us. It is far too great in itself, uh, even to comprehend it. And it's a source to us of constant wonder as we still dwell in the clay and the mire and the filth of sin and the weakness of the flesh and the fallenness of this world, as well as its futility. We ask you, Lord, that you would enable us by faith to rise above it all and to embrace more fully and richly the promises which are laid before your church with Abraham and indeed with Noah as well, to endure for a time, to wait with patience, and then to obtain the promise. We have we have yet to obtain it. We thank you for the way the New Testament speaks of this foretaste. We have a down payment, a guarantee, a first fruits of the harvest, a guarantee of the full inheritance, but we still have yet to in, inherit the fullness of what is promised to us. And there is still this terrible possibility and danger that some may yet still fall away. And so we ask you, Lord, that you would continue calling your church to a steadfast obedience and a full and a lively faith. As we consider again this morning, the example of the faith of the saints which have gone before us, we remember that the way of uh, the way not only of salvation, but the way of the pilgrim is the way of faith. We ask that as you were calling the church to faith, that you would give us a clearer grasp of what saving faith truly is and consists of, and that you might enable us to find in ourselves such faith. And that through the means of grace and by your own sovereignty, you would cause that faith to grow in each of us. Father, we aren't just coming together uh, to go through the motions, uh, to do church, to treat it as a work. Uh, by which we count ourselves as righteous, but we are seeking indeed that which alone you can give, and that is grace to help in time of need, as we keep referring to in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. We need the help of a Savior every day of our lives. We need you to draw us and to call us forward, and then to enable us to do so. If we cannot find help here, Lord, where else will we find it? Just as Peter said, where else would we go? There isn't a single place in the world we can find what we can find here. In the encouragement of a fellow Christian, the Bible opened and preached and, and so many other things which we find. We hope most of all your precious spirit abiding with your church and strengthening her. And Father, we are still looking for greater blessings than we have yet come to experience. As we press forward in faith, we ask you that we might enjoy in the coming year and indeed in the years to come if you should tarry. A greater blessing of the spirit, even that we might see in our day days of revival where the church is greatly strengthened And her witness and her light begins to shine more brightly in this dark world. We live in days of such terrible darkness, O Lord. And it is a point of grief to the Christian. Not just that we at times partake in it, but just that we should live in days such as these. But we ask you that we might not only find encouragement in the church, but that the world itself might be encouraged by the church. And as Jesus says, through a bright uh, shining light, that even the unbeliever would come to glorify God on account of us. That we would, in an indirect way, become an object of your own praise in the eyes of the world and even the unbeliever. And that some should even be brought into the church through conversion, which is to say, into the kingdom of God through our Christian witness. But, Father, we know the great thing in in order and and needed in every age, whether as a man thinks of his own life or as a church thinks of its own, that we are called, as always, to keep our household in order and we wish to be a church in which... uh, People would wish to come and that you would continue to deal with us and to refine us and to purify us so that we would be a fit vessel for your glory and your grace to be bestowed and displayed in this world. But then, gracious father, as we close out our prayer, we remember those words your son taught us to pray. Now saying our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, as a scripture reading, I want to look at Genesis chapter 6, which Is the passage which stands behind the New Testament reading and the sermon text, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. There, in that single verse, uh, the writer, the apostle, recounts the history which we have recorded for us in Genesis 6. So let us read that history now. Notice, uh, if if you are able, uh, the way faith, uh, the way the Word of God comes, number one, and the way. The varied ways that faith responds. Number two, and we'll see that in the sermon. And perhaps that what I just said won't even make sense until the sermon, but I hope it makes sense then. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. that The sons of God saw the daughters of men and they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord said uh, or saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before Uh, God and the earth was filled with violence so God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and God said to Noah the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold I will destroy them with the earth make yourself an ark of gopher wood would make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch and this is how you shall make it The, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits, it's height 30 cubits, and you shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in it, in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks, and behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, in which is the breath of life, everything that is on the earth shall die, But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you and keep them to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten. And you shall gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. And in response to God's word now, let us stand and sing the doxology. Be seated and then turn with me to the back of your hymnal, page 644, Psalter Selection 49, Psalms 99 through 101. Read along with me in the bold. The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble, he sitteth between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. The king's strength also loveth judgment. Thou dost establish equity. Thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool for he is holy. Moses and Aaron among his priests, among them that call upon his name. They call upon the Lord and he answered them. He spake unto them in cloudy pillar they kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answerest them, O Lord our God. Thou wast a God that forgavest them, though thou took vengeance of their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands, And his truth endureth to all generations. I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. O when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso slandereth his neighbor in secret, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. And now, uh, it didn't make the bulletin, uh, but we do have something here that uh, it, it is uh, part of the worship service, namely, uh, Vinny, I'd invite you to come and to profess faith. Well, one of the things that we uh, believe as Presbyterians, and as I stressed last time, providentially, the Lord ordering it like this is nice. We had a baptism last week, uh, if I remember correctly, or at least recently. Now we have a profession of faith this week. The ordering of that is quite nice, I think. Uh, as I stress, we do not believe baptism is salvation. We believe that salvation comes through a profession of faith. We do believe that the children of believers who have faith do belong to the church by virtue of their birth. Uh, just as Abraham's children were included in the covenant of grace, which he enjoyed and we being his children after spiritual fashion, uh, finding the same principle in the new covenant. So uh, I am in no difficulty over that point, but uh, I would certainly not suggest that any of Abraham's children were saved by their circumcision. Uh, since we know from Romans 4 that Abraham's circumcision was a was a, uh, a seal of the righteousness he came to possess by faith. And so it is. Uh, for, for us in the new covenant, baptism is a seal. It is not your salvation. Your salvation is found in your faith in Christ, which, uh, we look for the children to profess, uh, something that we are looking for more and more. We don't want to force the issue. We don't want to put pressure on the children, but in God's grace and in God's timing, we are, we are looking for that in the church and praying that God would bring about more of this. Uh, Vinny is a member of the church already through baptism, but now coming into Communicant membership through profession of faith, now enjoying, for instance, uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so may this be uh, the beginning of a work that the Lord does here uh, in this church. Uh, and she, she said to the to the session something which I, I was thankful to hear, and that was that the Communicants class was something of a stimulus to her and spurring her on to this moment. And may, may it be that for others. And uh, I look forward to doing uh, another one of those this fall, Lord willing. So. Uh, it's something we're looking for in the church, and we praise God for your testimony and professing faith, uh, Vinny. And uh, really, all, all you have to do is say yes five times before the church. In faith, uh, I, do you believe these five things, uh, the five things we went over in the class, having professed your faith to the session, your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe the Bible, consisting of the Old and New Testaments, to be the word of God and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? Do you believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory and that Jesus Christ is God, the son come in the flesh? Do you confess that because of your sinfulness, you abhor and humble yourself before God, that you repent of your sin and that you trust for salvation, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ alone? Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord and do you promise that in reliance on the grace of God you will serve him with all that is in you forsake the world resist the devil put to death your sinful deeds and desires and lead a godly life. And do you promise to participate faithfully in this church's worship and service to submit in the Lord to its government and to heed its discipline even in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life. Well praise the Lord let us pray let us uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful uh, for the testimony uh, of one of your little ones, uh, though she isn't so little anymore, but uh, but to see uh, the children of the church coming up to profess their belief in the Bible, their belief in the triune God and God, the son coming into the world as our savior, the belief that he alone is our savior and not ourselves and that he is our Lord whom we must follow and that the church which he has founded is a place where we belong as Christians, if we are Christians. God, that is the testimony of faith. We look for all who truly profess Jesus Christ. It is not a difficult test if we are believers. These are things that you have caused us to see and to believe and take to heart. And we pray uh, that you would look after her faith. That we as a church would help and encourage her. And that now uh, she would be a help and encouragement to us equally. Pray also uh, that we might see a harvest as well. The little ones coming up to profess faith more and more in this church. Lord, you are sovereign in the salvation of sinners. We give you all praise and glory. We leave it to you, a Holy Spirit to blow where you will. We praise you when you do, and we even praise you when when you don't. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name, Amen. And now, in preparation for the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us stand together and sing hymn number two forty. Please be seated. I you know we don't sing that hymn all too often, but it's a wonderful picture of the kind of faith Noah had as he experienced the end of things created in the old world, uh, and we are called to have a faith like him, so, uh, and so we sing that hymn. Now, uh, the word of God this morning comes to us from Hebrews chapter 11, a single verse about the faith of Noah, though calling to mind a great deal of scriptural material. Hebrews chapter 7, chapter 11, verse 7. Hear the word of God. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the word of God, which is something uh, the book of Hebrews tells us is sharper uh, than a double-edged sword. It pierces deep into the soul. It searches us. It tries us. It tests us. It finds us out. It exposes us. The great question which we are seeking to answer about ourselves is do we have faith? And do we have a faith like this? And do we even know what faith is? Well, Holy Spirit, we ask you that you would give us a greater sense of what true and saving faith consists of. And that you would uh, give us faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are here uh, looking at the man Noah. As our third example of faith, last time we looked at Enoch and Abel together. Those three belong together as a triplet. Uh, as old world examples of faith. That is, before the world was consumed in judgment, the waters of judgment at the flood. It's no surprise to find, if, uh, not just thinking of the triplet, but of the chapter itself, uh, Noah enrolled in such a list, though it was maybe a little surprising to find Abel and Enoch, since they aren't exactly prominent figures in the Old Testament. But Noah surely is. Noah, unlike them, obviously holds a kind of prominence among the early biblical figures. He is famous, his example is famous among not only believers, but unbelievers. In fact, I think uh, some years ago there was even a movie that was made about him, though I didn't watch it, I doubt any of you did either. But the point is, uh, the example of Noah is noteworthy, it's famous, and it's celebrated. And it's something that we are celebrating uh, together this evening and seeking to learn from. Briefly, we might recall his history like this from Genesis chapter 6. Noah lived in days of great wickedness. That's the point you see when you read uh, the history following the fall, beginning with uh, the incident of Cain and Abel, what you discover in a very brief span of time, at least insofar as the history is concerned in the Bible, just three chapters, how quickly and how bad things became. From uh, the fall of the two sons, one murdered, the other a murderer and uh, and downward, the descent of man went down to the very worst. Things uh, truly, it would seem, became if you read Genesis six, as bad as they could become. The account of how things became so bad is given at the beginning of Genesis chapter six. What we discover in chapter 4 is that there were two lines. There was the godly line and the ungodly line. There was the ungodly line of Cain. But then at the end of chapter 4, we read of the godly line of Seth. And through the godly line of Seth, we discover that godliness was preserved in the world. We have the example in chapter 5 of a man like Enoch. He came out of the godly line. But uh, a difficulty arose, a very grave one. In chapter 6, we read the two lines began to intermarry. And as a result of that, in a very short span of time, man quickly became as bad as he could become. And uh, and uh, the the light of godliness was stamped out of the world. Man became hopelessly wicked. And we read that God came to regret that he had made man. And yet at the same time, we recognize that God's purpose for humanity, which was preserved through the godly line. And as promised to Eve, that her seed would, uh, her seed would crush the head of the serpent, the promise of redemption still lived. That promise was not entirely lost. For there was this one man, Noah, who came out of the line of Seth. And we read of Noah in verse 8, for as bad as things were, Noah found favor with God. And he was, a uh, verse 9, a just and a righteous man in days of profound evil, far worse than our own days. Here was a day that was so wicked that God was prepared to uh, to destroy everything. And yet in that day, he found one man whom he favored, one man who was just, one man who believed. To Noah, we discover in chapter 6, and it's strange even to read as I read it. I've read it now twice this morning aloud, the early and the late service. He gives these strange instructions to build an ark after an exact fashion and he was to do so not by the sea but inland which made it uh, seem even stranger what use would this massive ark have for a man who wasn't even by the sea to do so enduring the scorn of the world 120 years we discover from verse 3 was the period of time that was to pass as God made clear there that man had from that moment 120 years and then God would uh, he would destroy the world, so to speak. He would destroy mankind through the waters of judgment. And so we see that it didn't happen all at once. Noah, as Abraham after him, had to wait. He had to endure in faith, even as he endured the scorn of the world. What was promised to him did not come right away. He, like Abraham... And we read in chapter 6, verse verse 15 of the book of Hebrews. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now that is said of Abraham. Abraham had to wait something like 25 years for the, the promise of a son. Well, Noah had to wait 120 years. But as he waited and as he endured in faith, he did indeed obtain which was what was promised to him. Noah was a steadfast man and a believer in God. He happily did everything God told him to do, strange as it was, and incomprehensible to the human reason. We read at the end of chapter 6, so Noah did all that the Lord commanded him to do. And as a result, he and his family, we later read, are saved from the terrible waters of judgment that burst forth upon the world and destroyed everything that walked on the earth. And it is on account of this that our writer here says of him in verse 7. Let me read it again. By faith Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Moved with godly fear. Prepared an ark for the saving of his household. By which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now before we look at that verse in detail. And I think you will agree it is a very full verse. I find four points about faith there. The first thing I want to do is to place Noah in the outline of history that is given here. The outline of history, not only which is found in Hebrews 11, but which is found more broadly in the Bible. A point which may seem incidental, but really which isn't. The first point being the structure of the covenants. Why would this be important to see? Well, in calling Noah to mind and these other prominent examples, the writer is actually doing that. He is calling to mind the long history of the Bible and bringing to mind once more the structure and the history of the covenants. And this has, in fact, uh, been a major argument in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a book about the covenants. It is about the flow of redemptive history, all of which leads, he wishes us to see, to the coming of Christ. As he makes clear at the beginning of the book, God has spoken in various ways, but now he's speaking in his son. But you see, he places the coming of Christ in the context of the unfolding of redemption in the history that we read about in the Bible. And then, uh, as we'll see, he is constantly contrasting Christ with the period of redemption that comes before him, namely uh, the period of the old covenant with its Levitical priesthood. And so our grasp of the contents of the book of Hebrews depends uh, majorly on our grasp of the history, which it is describing, namely, again, the history of the Bible, which is a history of the covenants. And it is that same history which he is once again unfolding in Hebrews chapter eleven. Uh, the entire history of redemption he is calling to mind. He is bringing uh, he is bringing up the major figures from the major periods, and he is showing us again and again that faith was the central thing in our lives. Now, this is what the structure of the covenant looks like. If I could just uh, state it briefly, because. Uh, This is something which we not only need to see here, but which we will need to see as it unfolds. And then we will just notice again and again. Well, look, even in this period, faith faith was the big thing. The first period, however, uh, not so much, which is excluded in what we read in uh, chapter 11. And that is the creation and the fall of man. That's the first major period in redemptive history in which man was under a covenant of works. Adam was uh, to... Passed the probationary test. If he did, so he would live. If he did not, so he would die. You read Genesis chapter 2 and you see this clearly. By his fall into sin, uh, he broke the covenant of works. And so Adam, because of this, does not come in here at all, as I noticed last time. The history does not begin with Adam, but it begins with his son. If you understand the history of the covenant, you'll understand why. Again, Adam was not under the covenant of grace, but a covenant of works. I do think he was under the covenant of Grace afterwards, but it would still be confusing to bring him in here when Adam is brought into these kinds of discussions, such as Romans five, first Corinthians 15, we see him standing in contrast to Christ. Whereas in Adam, man sinned and fell in Christ, man is justified and lives and so forth. Romans chapter five, whereas in Adam all die. So in Christ we are made alive and will be raised from the dead. First Corinthians 15. Well, that's the first major period. The second is uh, the flood of the old world and the beginning of a new world. That's the period we're in now in the book of Hebrews. The fact is, which we discover uh, from reading the brief history in Genesis in which Peter refers to as the world that then was, there was an entire world history which occurred before the flood, all of which led up to a period of judgment. And as Noah is brought through the waters of judgment and saved through those same waters, he is brought into a new world. And there God establishes a new covenant, which we read of at the end of chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 9. What is sometimes called the covenant of common grace, where God promises that the world will go on. It will not be destroyed by God again until the end of the world. In other words, the history of the world will not be uh, a history of uh, judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment. God promises the world. He will allow the world uh, to unfold unto the final judgment. Following that, there is a third major period where we read of Abraham, who immediately follows the history of Noah in Genesis chapter 12. And we read about uh, this period all the way through the end of Genesis. The history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Joseph after them. Abraham here becomes the major figure who represents this major period of redemptive history, what is commonly called the covenant of grace, which God establishes with Abraham. Abraham was to find salvation and to inherit the promises as is highlighted in Hebrews and other places, not by his works, but by his faith. The the keynote of that covenant, or the central feature, was faith. And it is not surprisingly because of that, that the New Testament, as we'll shortly see in Hebrews, makes a great deal of Abraham and commending faith to us. But following that, as the fourth major period, we have Moses, which we have been considering in the evening series, who is the focus of Exodus and all the way to the end of the Old Testament. With him, we have the fourth major period where Israel is organized as a nation, along with the Levitical priesthood and so forth. All that we've been considering in Hebrews. The covenant that is founded with Moses is commonly called, not just by ourselves but by the New Testament, the Old Covenant. Even the Old Testament calls it the Old Covenant. The reason this is important to stress, I know this is detailed, I know this is not interesting preaching. But the reason this is interesting to stress is because when I am referring to the Old Covenant in my preaching, I am not talking about Noah. I'm not talking about Adam. I'm not talking about Abraham. I am talking about Moses and everything that followed. That is what we have to realize once we come to Hebrews chapter 11. We are not speaking when speaking of the old covenant of the whole period of redemptive history that we read of in the Old Testament. We are speaking of nearly the whole history. Exodus to the end is the majority of the text. But the whole book of Genesis comprises three major periods of redemptive history. And so the, the periods, the three periods that come before, fall in different categories. The period of Noah, the period of Abraham. These men were not under the old covenant. There was no Israel, there was no priesthood. All of the sacrifices we've been reading of in the book of Hebrews is referring only to that which was true under the period which Moses founded or which God founded through Moses. The old covenant, therefore, was something different. Something that didn't start until Moses. The final period is the new covenant which dawns when Christ pours out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And technically speaking it's, a, it's amazing. I, I just had a conversation with someone last week about this. So th- this sort of thing is relevant in our understanding of Hebrews. Christ in his coming. Was still under the law. The days which he lived in the flesh he lived under the old covenant. Not the new covenant. But with his death if you think of what occurs uh, and what is being described in the book of Hebrews, what he accomplishes by his death that is at the end of his life, and the life which he now enjoys in the presence of God, he brought that dispensation to an end. That is the old covenant, not the whole Old Testament. Don't think that. But the period which began with Moses, with the Levitical priesthood, all of that he brought to an end. And now what we need to realize is that Jesus Christ has brought about a new era, a final era, the final dispensation, you might say, that we are not dispensationalists, the final period in redemptive history leading up to the end of the world. And the argument of the book of Hebrews is you have to realize what God is doing throughout history to fully appreciate the period in which you now live. There has been throughout the book of Hebrews a contrast in particular between Moses and Christ, which began in chapter three. He speaks first of Moses and then of Christ, and he builds and unfolds that contrast. The two major periods of redemptive history, which they represented, are contrasted. Christ coming along, fulfilling and ending the one which came before. Again, if you go back to chapter three, you will see this. But it is also important for us to see, in light of that argument that's been unfolding, that the that redemptive history did not begin with Moses. There was a great deal that God was doing even before him. And that's what he reminds us of here. You remember I referred to it as last time, the antiquity of faith. Faith goes back a long ways. And before Moses... God gave a certain prominence to faith in the establishment of the covenant of grace, calling to mind Abraham, as we'll see next time. But even before that, in the old world, we have old world examples of faith. Men like Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Understand that we are talking about the second major dispensation, not the fourth, which is the old covenant. And next time we'll look at the third, which is represented by Abraham. Here we're looking at the faith of Noah, and as I say, there are four major things which... Uh, we are able to see in chapter 11, verse 7, four things which Noah illustrates about the kind of faith that is being commended to us in this chapter. And the first, which is the major point I want to stress, though, uh, there are three other things which I want to stress more briefly, is uh, Noah, and I think I said this when I read Genesis chapter 6, and here I'll explain what I meant. Notice, uh, through Noah, uh, how it is th- that... Uh, the word of God comes to us. Notice the various ways that the word of God comes to us as well as the various settings, but especially the various ways. It doesn't always come to us in the same way. If you, if you just look, and I, I want to make a great deal of this by faith, Noah being divinely warned. It came to him as a warning. The word of God came to him as a warning. If you remember last time from the confessional definition Uh, That we considered. From chapter 14 section 2 of our confession. It says that by faith we believe it to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. In other words by faith we do not simply attach ourselves to this or that favorable word which we happen to like. Our favorite Bible passages but we ignore the others. Imagine if Noah had done that if God had said, I'm going to save your family, verse 18, but he ignored, I'm about to destroy the world. I don't think it would have fared very well for Noah. He had to take the whole word of God or he could have enjoyed none of the benefit. Faith does not attach itself to this or that word, beloved. It doesn't just take its favorite promises and cherish them. I know that's how we tend to think of faith. We also tend to treat our Bibles that way. One of the reasons I want you all to be reading the McShane Reader throughout the year is I want you to have a steady diet of the whole word of God every year. It's something I've been doing since my seminary days. Well, we tend to treat our Bibles that way, reading our favorite books, our favorite passages, or even opening our Bibles at random. But we also imagine that that is what preaching should be. That preaching should be reduced like faith in our minds to the simplest terms. When in reality, there is a richness and a variety found in the Bible that faith is meant to grasp. We are not meant, as I've recently been reading uh, again in William Still's book, The Work of the Pastor. We're not meant to simply reduce our preaching and even our understanding of the Bible. But he's especially speaking to preachers when he says, don't reduce your preaching to the simple gospel. That seems to be The standard today, that seems to be what people want. A constant repetition of the same truths over and over again. But I ask you, if you think of the calling of the minister and what he is called to do and what the Christian is called to do, is that what we find in the Bible? Or do we find in the Bible a richness and a fullness that is at times quite surprising? And so what William still says to ministers is, I want you to resist that. When people say, I just want you to preach the simple gospel every time. I want you to repeat the same truths every time you preach. Because people never really get past them or something like that. I want you to open your Bibles and work through it. And give them a steady diet of the entire word of God. And do you realize why that is? Because that's what faith is. And that is what faith ought to be. We are called, beloved, with Noah to believe the whole word of God. However it comes to us. And as we sit under the whole word of God, both in the pews and as we read through the whole word of God year by year, we discover, as I say, many surprising things. And what we also discover is that we aren't in control. But we find uh, that and we leave it to God to do what he will rather than trying to manufacture, whether in our own lives or through the preaching, some kind of human response. Faith, I say again, is a belief in the whole word of God. It believeth, again, to use the confession, To be true whatsoever is revealed in the word of God. Whatever God says so we believe. And so again it reads through the whole word of God. Not just our favorite passages. Passages yearly ideally. And it is content with nothing less as it sits in the pew. Than a pulpit ministry that brings to the congregation. The fullness of the word of God. And what faith discovers in this is something that Noah discovered. Namely. The rich variety of ways the word of God comes to us. It does not, I say again, always come to us in the same way. And so neither should the preaching. Neither should our reading of the Bible. What we see here, as I stressed earlier, is that the word of God came to Noah, not in a promise. There was a promise, but the prominence is given to the warning. That's how God, you might say, preached to Noah. He warned him. Sometimes it threatens that was also part of the confessional definition. It believeth it to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word of God, trembling in the threatenings, obeying the commands, believing the promises. Sometimes it threatens, as it did in the days of Noah, sometimes it commands, and sometimes it promises. All of this, as I say, the prominence is given to the warning, but in fact we find all three elements looking to Genesis chapter 6. We find the fullness and the richness and the variety of God's word coming to Noah. The word of God came to Noah with awful threatenings, first and foremost. That's why the prominence is given to that verse 13. I'm about to destroy the world, Genesis chapter 6. And, and Noah, as we read, uh, being warned, was moved with godly fear. He took this to heart, and it was because of that that he believed God and he built the ark. He trembled, unlike the world, at the prospect of judgment. It was the world around him that was ignoring in unbelief the fact of what God was about to do. And oh, that they might have trembled. They might then have listened to his preaching. But a lack of godly fear was a lack of faith, you see there, whereas the presence of godly fear was the presence of faith in the world of Noah, or in the heart of Noah, excuse me. But this is what also led him to get busy. That is to obey God in his command to build the ark. We read uh, the detailed commands in that chapter. And what we read at the end of the chapter in verse 22 is that God did everything that the Lord commanded him to do. His obedience was exact and entire. He obeyed the commands by faith. And his obedience sprung from a lively And a steadfast faith in God's word, which also included the promise to him and his family. Verse 18, I am about not only to judge the world, he says, but verse 18, I am about to save your family. Threatening, command, and promise. The various ways the word of God came to him. And in each case, he responded appropriately. He was moved with godly fear. He obeyed and he believed the promise. But that isn't typically how we think about faith, is it? We typically think of faith in a more narrow sense, uh, narrowly not in terms of threatenings or commands, but narrowly in terms of promises. Faith is a disposition to believe the promises. But here, as I say, we find a much broader definition, not only in the case of Noah, but also in the case of the confession. One of the things I was interested to discover was Calvin himself wrestling over this point. In essence saying, uh, I almost don't understand it, although he comes to understand it. But he thinks out loud and says, now I thought faith dealt only with the promises. What is God talking about here, saying that by the warnings he was moved to fear? This is what he says, and I love the way he resolves it. He resolves it in exactly the way the confession does. Here is a quest- Here a question is raised. Why does the apostle make faith the cause of fear since it is respect to promises of grace rather than to threatenings? It seems to have been improperly stated that Noah, by faith, was led to fear. There he states the dilemma. Dilemma. But here's his response to that. To this, I reply that there's no reason why faith should not look to God and reverently receive whatever he may say and that it rightly belongs to faith to hear God whenever he speaks and unhesitatingly to embrace whatever may proceed from his sacred mouth. And to this, he adds, faith has regard to to commands and threatenings as well as promises. One of the things I notice there is the same three categories we find in the confession. Threatenings, commands, promises, even the same words. And I would just say then as an aside, something which I know, but which is, uh, is, is exciting to see. And that is, if you, if you are familiar with the Confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you begin to read Calvin's Institutes and his commentaries, you will realize that the Confession is just a reflection of Calvin's thought. And that as he resolves this very question, so we find it in our confession. Almost as though they were reading it as they came to write their definition of faith. Their very broad definition of faith. Not just the belief in the promises, but also the threatenings and the commands. We have a balance, a wonderful balance represented in Calvin's thought, in the confession. And might we find the same balance in our own? Faith, as he says, hears All of God's words, not just its favorite words, but all of God's words, even that which seems strange to us, even that which seems to the human reason, incredible and unlikely. And and so this this true faith is greatly varied in its responses to that word. Not only does the word come to us in this varied way, but the responses themselves are varied accordingly. We read that Noah was warned, thus he was moved with godly fear. Go to the next verse. By faith, Abraham obeyed. The responses are varied. And so faith as I've said. And I said this last time. It is disposed and directed whichever way the word of God may lead. And any definition of faith which does not include these aspects is surely inadequate. And so let me note two things pastorally here. Before I go on to notice the other three things about his faith. Though as I said briefly. Two things. One. Is that, as I've been stressing, fear is appropriate to faith. Well, if you've been listening carefully to the sermons on Hebrews, people have told me this, my own children have told me this, and I can add my own testimony. There is something fearful about some of the passages of the book of Hebrews, uh, something terrible. Uh, and in the threatenings, which we read of, especially in chapters 6 and 10. And you can't read those passages in faith and not be afraid. And the question which the believer struggles under as he sits under that preaching and reads those passages, if I am afraid, do I have faith? Well, let me offer you this encouragement. That By faith, when we are warned, we are meant to be moved with godly fear. Do not think that isn't faith. That is exactly what faith is, beloved. Faith trembles at the threatenings. It is exactly the, the absence of that trembling when God warns that marks out the unbeliever. He pretends, as in the days of Noah, that it isn't so, that there is no judgment coming. And see, he goes about his days unafraid when he ought to have been afraid. And I would even go so far as to say that if faith does not move us with godly fear... At the threatenings. Then we might wonder if we have faith. Do not despair if it makes you afraid I'm saying. Recognize that you are moved along with Noah with godly fear. At the warnings. But the other thing to notice here. Is how the cross itself impresses us with this same truth. The great subject of the epistle. There at Calvary as we consider Christ's one sacrifice for sin for all time. Faith elicits a rich variety of responses in the heart of the believer. And so for one thing, as we behold a bleeding, dying savior on the cross who became sin for us and thus an object of God's infinite wrath, there is an element of fear that we are bound to experience and to feel in our hearts. Look, look there at the cross, at the terrible and awful consequences of sin, the dreadful wrath of God. He had, he endured. There is something we are bound to say as believers that is fearful in it. Yes, but there's also something wonderful. Rich promises there found which assure us of eternal life and peace with God. And which can be found nowhere else. Just as faith makes us tremble. So it makes us embrace the promises. And faith in the cross, let me also say, makes us obedient sons. It is the cross more than anything else. If you understand the great argument of the New Testament in its preaching of the cross That commands more so even than the law of God. It is the cross that is exacting and demanding of the believer. It is a bleeding savior who bids and calls you to follow him in a life, as Al Martin says, of principled obedience. It is not the cross that is an excuse of a life of sinfulness, rather the cross which calls us to a life of principled obedience and holiness. And so, again, I would just notice that our definition, our broader not our more narrow definition of faith is surely right. We ought to see faith as capable of these various expressions uh, in the believer and and, uh, and uh, in, as including all of these things as the word of God comes to us in these various ways. But then, more briefly, we also see in the second place the way Noah illustrates the principle found in verse 1. That principle is this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, that is exactly what we find in verse 7. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. In Noah, we find faith and assurance connected as closely as is possible. We are told that he believed which was uh, that which was unseen. That which was off at a distance, out of sight. Let me quote Calvin again when he says, what is said here especially sets forth the power of faith. For the Apostle ever reminds us of this truth, that faith is the evidence of things not seen. And doubtless it is the peculiar office of faith to behold in God's word the things which are hid and are far removed from our senses. It is especially, Calvin is saying, and the writer to the Hebrews, uh, the office of faith to deal with that which is unseen. As we deal with the warnings and with the promises, things which do not lie close at hand but are off at a distance. And what we notice about Noah is his deep and abiding conviction for so long a time in God's word. A thing promised to him that he could not yet see. And yet, which we discover was as certain to him as the world about him. And it was his faith in that that determined the course of the whole of his life. Well, the world was busy indulging in sin. He was busy building the ark. He devoted his whole life to the word of God. It determined his outlook, it determined the course of his life. That is faith, beloved. It isn't just how we begin, it's how we live. His whole life was lived in dependence on the word of God. And so we read in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 6, he walked with God like Enoch before him. And from such a faith sprung all kinds of good works, not such as he devised himself, but only such as he found in the word of God. Strange as they were, building the ark just as God had commanded Let me briefly also note, thirdly, that he condemned the world by his faith. Yes, faith is capable capable of that as well. Now, that is interesting to notice because when you read the account of Genesis, you might say, but I thought it was God who condemned the world. Yes, but Noah, by his faith, joined him in doing so. And also that, finally, the fourth characteristic of his faith, he was an heir of the righteousness that is according to faith. That is, as an heir, he inherited something in advance. He came to possess what was later realized in the time of Christ, namely the righteousness which is by faith. Not the righteousness of works or of merit. Sometimes we think we find that in the Old Testament, but we're wrong. These men found the same thing by faith that we find again. They find an imputed righteousness. They find that God regards and accepts our persons as righteous solely by faith. The righteousness, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, which comes to us as a gift on the basis of faith. Even the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. The testimony of his faith was exactly the same as Paul's in the fifth dispensation. So in the second, the fifth or the second major period of redemption, God accepted his person as righteous by his faith. So let us see in summary. These three points. Let us see first how faith comes. It comes by the word of God and only by the word of God. And the way in which that word comes is varied greatly. Sometimes by warning, sometimes by promise, sometimes by command. Let us see second what faith does. It is moved with godly fear to obey the Lord. And in in doing so, it condemns the world. And let us see thirdly what faith obtains Namely, the righteousness which is according to faith. And in light of all that, I hope you will agree that Noah stands out as a very bright example of what it is to have faith from the old world. And I hope you will equally agree that the great thing that is needed now is ever, just as it was in the days of Noah, is faith. Such a faith as was found in the days of Noah, trembling at the threatenings, obeying the commands. Embracing the promises and which by God's grace is still found in the church today, even if only present in a few. Amen. And let us now come to the table together. First Corinthians chapter 10. I want to notice something about the Lord's Supper that we just noticed about faith in the sermon. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of the one bread observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar. What am I saying then that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons or do we provoke the Lord with jealousy Are we stronger than he? Well, as I've I've been trying week by week to connect the Lord's Supper to the sermon, there's a point here which stands out uh, to me very strongly in our consideration of the Lord's Supper, which is, as Hebrews is, presentation of the priestly sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it is, above all things, a call to have faith. And as a means of grace, it's a means of strengthening faith. But do you realize that, as you might say, the word of God is coming to us in pictorial form, And even in objective fashion, a piece of bread and a cup of wine that it is doing there in the sacred meal, the same three things that we saw in the sermon. That the promise of salvation is offered in the body and the blood of Christ, and we are meant to embrace that promise by faith. But do you also realize not just in what Paul is saying here and in first Corinthians 11, but also in the solemnity of Jesus, speaking of the apostate who's at the table who is about to forsake Christ when he instituted the Lord's Supper, that there are warnings which are present at the same time which we are meant by faith to be moved with godly fear, not to run from the table, but to partake. The more we consider these things, the more we are with Noah moved with godly fear, the more conscious we are of the warnings and the threatenings. Just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, some of you, because you lack faith, are sick and even dying. There is a warning there that we ought to heed. And it's the man who doesn't heed the warning, who doesn't have faith, and therefore ought not to come. That's the man who suffers and is sick and dies by the Lord's Supper. He trifles with sacred things. The man who's moved with fear in his heart, that's the man who has faith. That's the man who ought to come. In a sense, he says, I'm afraid, but I'm, the greatest fear I have is not to come. What will happen to me if I'm cut off from Christ? But it also commands in a very demanding way in this sacred rite, Jesus is binding us more closely to himself and he is calling the church to obedience. Now, part of that obedience is just doing the thing. We ought to partake of the Lord's Supper simply because Christ commands us to do so. That's part of our obedience. But then in in doing the thing, in partaking of the Lord's Supper at his command, we also are bound uh, and resolved, one would hope, by faith. To a closer and a more circumspect circumspect, uh, life of godliness. That is what he's calling you to hear here to as well equally. And so let us be conscious of those things. And especially with the warnings to reflect whether or not the table is for us. And so with those words of invitation and of fencing let us pray together. Our father in heaven we are grateful for uh, the table of the Lord's Supper. Uh, It is something which binds not only us more closely to our Savior, but also to each other. It is therefore communion, communion with Christ, communion with one another. May it have such a beneficial effect upon ourselves. May we by faith be moved in these various ways to fear, to to an embrace of the promises and as well to a more exact and principled life of obedience. Pray that we would even find in here the resources for such a life, a life again of faith. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Beginning with the bread, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. As I am ministering in his name, give this bread to you. Our Lord Jesus said, take eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name. Give this cup to you. And uh, please remember that the outer ring is wine. The inner rings are grape juice. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And now as we close out our worship, let us stand together and sing hymn number 223.